Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done hundreds of them now, and if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to the past interviews menu on batgap.com where you'll see them all organized in several different ways. This show is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers, so if you appreciate it and would like to support it, there's a PayPal button on every page of the site. And, uh, you know, considering the number of people who watch it, even a small donation, if enough people do that, uh, becomes significant. So, But we never want people to feel obligated or to strain in any way, so that's our attitude. My guest today is Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien. Yogacharya means teacher of yoga, right? Yes, that's exactly what it means. <laughs> <laughs> and Acharya is a teacher. Ellen is a teacher of meditation, an award-winning poet, writer, and the spiritual director of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a Kriya Yoga meditation center with headquarters in San Jose, California. She has taught Kriya Yoga nationally and internationally for more than three decades and has received many service awards, including the Mahatma Gandhi Award for the Promotion of Religious Pluralism. Ordained to teach in 1982 by Roy Eugene Davis, a direct disciple of Paramahansa Yogananda, her message is Engaged Enlightenment, an invitation to live an awakened, creatively inspired, and fulfilled life now. Along with her service as a meditation teacher and esteemed Yogacharya, Ellen is the founder of Carry the Vision, a community nonviolence education project bringing meditation instruction to staff and children in schools, the prison population, and other segments of society. She is the founder and president of Meru Institute, providing healthy lifestyle education and leadership training in yoga studies, Ayurveda, and community service. And she is the host of the Yoga Hour, a weekly podcast with listeners in over 130 countries. I listened to quite a few episodes of that over the past week. Her latest book is The Jewel of Abundance, Finding Prosperity Through the Ancient Wisdom of Yoga. We'll be talking about that quite a bit today, but that's not the only thing we're going to be talking about because that's not all of what Ellen is about. Maybe we could start with that, and then we'll, we'll branch off into other things. And, you know, I, I read most of your book and listened to you do some interviews about it, and prosperity or the lack of it is very much in the news these days since we're in the midst of a government shutdown and a lot of people aren't getting paychecks. And, um, you know, we're always hearing these statistics like the three richest Americans hold more wealth than the bottom 50% of the country, and most workers say they are in debt, and many believe they always will be. And 78% of full-time workers said they live paycheck to paycheck. And, you know, in light of those statistics, I was kind of reminded of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which probably many people have heard about, which... Uh, basically he, he built this pyramid which I'm showing on the screen now that initially we have these physiological needs then safety then sort of social needs love and belonging then esteem and finally self-actualization and Maslow kind of makes it sound like you don't think about self-actualization until all these other needs are met and I think there's some truth to that I mean if people are starving and scraping out a, a meager existence they probably aren't going to be thinking much about spiritual enlightenment. With that as a starting point, with what I've just said, Ellen, why don't you just jump right in and tell us what you think, and then we'll take it on from there. Thanks, Jack, and thanks for the invitation to be with you today. 
I think that's really a good place to begin in terms of looking at Maslow. And one of the things that inspired the book for me is that, you know, I work with many people who are on a spiritual journey and learning how to pay the bills seems to be an integral part of that. So, you know, while it's true that when situations are dire, person is less inclined to think about meditating, right? You're going to think about, you know, how you're going to live or how you're going to survive. But there are many people today who are on a spiritual path. And the idea that we've had for a long time and that many of the uh, traditions promote that somehow the spiritual life is quote unquote separate from our material existence, I believe is a fundamental error we have to get over because it contributes to the dualistic mindset that sets us up for so many problems. Yeah, and obviously some traditions have emphasized things like poverty (laughs) as, as being conducive to spirituality. And Jesus said it's more difficult for a rich man to pass through the eye of a needle than it is no, for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So there's this sort of, in a way, in some traditions, this prejudice against any kind of material affluence or comfort. Yeah, as far as I could see, I mean, I'm not a scholar of world religions, but as far as I can see, you can find it in all of the traditions. And you have to, you know, from my perspective, look deeper into what these awakened beings, you know, whether it's Jesus or Buddha, are really talking about. Mm. You know, they're putting up a flashing red light that is a good red light about, hey, if you get attached to things and to name and fame and all of that, then it's very difficult to develop the consciousness to enter that kingdom, that higher state of consciousness, however you want to Mm. say it, if you're attached, you know, to wealth and things, name and fame. So there's truth in that, but it's sort of, I think, got people interpreted as that money in itself is bad, uh, riches themselves are bad, fame is bad, (laughs) you know, any of that. But it's not the thing itself, of course, it's it's what we do with it and how it's a distraction rather than something that can be integral to our path. Yeah. And then obviously some have swung it in the other direction. I mean, some criticize the Catholic Church for being too opulent. And then there have been um, people like Reverend Ike, for instance, who seem to equate the number of Cadillacs you own with how spiritual you are. And there, there's the whole thing of the secret, you know, of using spirituality in some way, shape, or form to fulfill whatever desires you may have. And some of those things have left a bad taste in people's mouths. So how do we find a happy medium? And actually use the word attached a minute ago. Seems to me that that's the operant word because you can be attached to poverty and that's not going to help you. You can be attached to great wealth and and that can be a problem. But whatever your circumstances, if you could not be attached to them, and we'll, let's have you elaborate on what attached means, um, then perhaps the circumstances aren't such a problem. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, if our goal in life is to be awake, and I, I know you'll probably want to talk about what I mean by when I yeah, say we that. Yeah, we need to flesh out <laughs> these terms, yeah. <laughs> Uh, if, if that's the goal, you know, to be uh, awake, 
And from my perspective, you know, being awake includes making a positive contribution in this world that we're living in. For me, it's not the idea necessarily of going away somewhere, you know, separating yourself out from the world, but um, to be awake in the world and to make a positive contribution. So, you know, for me, that's that's the ideal, that, that we can learn to be in the world. Um, we can learn to create or draw to us what's needed, you know, mm-hmm. to fulfill our purpose, what, what we're doing here. And resources are a part of that. So it's important that we learn how to do that, learn how to do it consciously and not get caught up in it. But I think it has to do with having a clear sense of, you know, what your purpose is. And by that, I mean higher purpose. Yeah. Actually, this ties right into the question I was about to ask, which is that we all have different dharmas, right? We have different paths in life. And someone like Mahavatar Babaji, who is you know, part of your lineage, didn't do a whole lot in the world. He didn't, or isn't doing a whole lot in the world in terms of any overt thing. He's not running a business. But such beings are said to be critical to the well-being of the world. So it could be that someone's dharma is to be rather reclusive, and yet one can still be making a great contribution if that is one's dharma, right? I would totally agree with that. But I'm just trying to make the the point that you know many people that I have talked to when they first come to the spiritual path, and that includes me, mm-hmm. you know, I thought it was all about, you know, how do I get away from the world? <laughs> you know, yeah. it just, like, it just seems so messy, you know, if yeah. I can just, you know, own myself into a higher state of consciousness, and I can go live at an ashram, and, you know, everybody will be um, kind and loving and meditative, and it, it just won't be so messy. Well, you know, that's just a, a false idea. Mm-hmm. It's just as messy inside an ashram as it is outside, as far as I know. <laughs> yeah, I've lived in them. It can be. Sometimes um, the metaphor is used of rough stones in a tumbler, and they, it, they tumble around in the ashram until they all get smooth. So it's sometimes <laughs> the personality clashes in a, a space like that are kind of like that metaphor. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it is. It's a crucible. It's a, it's a good space to be in in, term, in terms of that. But, you know, I think... We can recognize that this awakening needs to happen, you know, right where we are, not by trying to get away from where we are. Yeah, which is not to say that stretches of time in a circumstance like that might not be a useful thing, but for most most people, I don't think are cut out for a lifetime of it. Yes, so exactly, that's a good way to put it. So for some, it is their dharma, it is their path, and it's exactly right. But I think when we look at how many people there are, you know, there are not that many ashrams. <laughs> many people are just in the world, you know, having families and jobs and, and doing that. So is awakening possible in that context? And is your job, is your life, is your vocation part of your spiritual journey? From my point of view, absolutely, yes. And even in the ashram, you know, people have jobs and it's part of their journey too. Yeah. I want to talk about the, the sort of four goals of life in a second, but just based on what you just said, that Gita verse comes to mind of, you know, one's own dharma, because one can perform it, one's own dharma, though lesser in merit, is better than the dharma of another. Uh, there's something about the, the dharma of another brings danger. 
Yeah, we shouldn't be envious of people who seem to be able to live in ashrams and, and you know, just if we have kids and a family, we shouldn't feel like we've failed in our spiritual mission or any such thing because if that's our dharma, it's actually going to be more evolutionary for us than trying yes. to do somebody else's dharma. Absolutely. Yeah. I think the verse says if you, even if you take up the dharma of another and succeed, yeah. <laughs> um, it, it, is, it is not uh, useful. It's better to fail <laughs> in yeah. your own than to succeed in the work of another. Right. It, it even says better is death in one's own dharma than trying to take the dharma of another. So well, we're throwing around this word dharma a lot. We haven't defined that one. Why don't you talk about the four universal goals of life that are drawn from the teachings of the ancient Vedas, and that will, in the process, that will define dharma. I loved coming upon those goals in my in my study and my journey, and they're they're called the purusharthas, and if they're if that's literally defined. We can say it means for the sake of the soul, for the sake of the higher self, however you want to think of that. And they're they're four interrelated goals. And the first, you know, as as you mentioned, is dharma, which I I would define as as living with higher purpose, and it's. And it has, of course, uh, you know, lots of meaning to it. When we think of Dharma, you know, we think of the cosmic order, the way, the sense of order in the universe out of which all ethics, spiritual path, everything coming out of that basic fundamental law of the universe, the supportive reality of the universe itself that is Dharma. And so this, as a life goal, I see Dharma as really first and foremost, which I see as universal for everyone, is to wake up to that, that reality, know what it is, how we can cooperate with that. And then secondarily, uh, Dharma is to um, discover what our unique path is, which we were just talking about, which is often called Svadharma, which one's unique expression that brings them in harmony with that larger reality. And second goal, which is what my book is about, is Arta, which is defined as wealth. Um, Before we go to Arta, let's yeah, just, sure. um, I think a lot of people struggle with what their unique path is. You know, what is my purpose in life? What should I be doing? And I'm doing, I'm doing this job which I don't like, and isn't there something <laughs> more important that I should be doing? And also, how does one... Uh, find what one's path is if and does everyone have a unique path or are some people just meant to do regular mundane jobs or maybe maybe they don't see mundane if that's your dharma maybe you enjoy them i think everyone does have a unique path of expression because we're all unique that seems obvious to me when you look around you know we don't we're not duplicates and so we have a, a unique expression and i, I think uh, and people are exploring dharma much more today. You know, it's becoming a, a more um, popular term, like yoga. People are, you know, asking, well, what's your dharma? Or thinking, you know, it's my dharma. <laughs> but um, I, I find that, uh, like many things in the West, I think that, that dharma has become, quote-unquote, a thing. So people uh, are quick to equate dharma with vocation. Yeah, I just did, yeah. actually, in my question. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, and of course, in the, you know, in the Gita verse, we could kind of go there with it. But but my sense of 
dharma is that it has to do with the fundamental expression of our being, which, you know, includes our essential nature, mm-hmm. our karma, our dharma, our responsibilities in life. All of that is there. So I always advise people to kind of look at, even to look back in time, look at their childhood and look at those qualities that have always been there, that have always been evident. You know, when you, you look at children, they're so different and they and they have usually very, at a very young age, they have some kind of fundamental qualities that are evident. You know, some of them, maybe they're very compassionate. My older daughter was always um, interested in, you know, animals and had this compassionate nature about that. And, you know, then other children are, you know, they're theatrical, <laughs> they're in the school play, um, others are artistic, others are you know, inventing things, and athletic, all of that. Yeah. So I say, look back at, you know, what did the, what did that represent, those interests and those qualities? And when, when we think about that, when we look at, well, and I call them divine qualities, whether mm. there's like soul qualities, qualities of the soul, whether it's, you know, wisdom or compassion, creativity, peace, all those things. So when you begin to think about that trajectory of your life and expressing those qualities, you look at it that way first, that it's about being and becoming. And then what you're going to do as a dharma is a natural reflection of that as far as I could see. And maybe in light of that explanation, your dharma can shift or you can find, you can discover a dharma that was more subtle that you hadn't realized. For instance, in my case, I loved drumming from the time I saw my first parade at the age of four and I was pounding on tables and finally, ten years later, I got a drum set and I played in rock bands until I was 20 and I loved that. But then, you know, I decided to become a meditation teacher and I just dropped the the drumming thing like a hot potato and plunged into teaching meditation, which I I liked a lot more. (laughs) And uh, that has kind of been my direction ever since. So I wouldn't have foreseen that when I was four, five, six, ten years old. I didn't really get, I didn't didn't conceive of spirituality until I was about 17 and then everything shifted. Interesting. That's very interesting. So... Um, going from drumming and music in in a sense into some silence, I would guess. <laughs> it was a more subtle form of creativity. Uh-huh. I felt like I was operating from a deeper level and yeah. also doing something much more meaningful for me ultimately than spending my life playing in smoky nightclubs or whatever. <laughs> exactly. But still connecting with people yeah, in what definitely. you do. Oh yes, one more thing about Dharma. You mentioned it, you use the, the, a metaphor of a stream, this evolutionary stream of, of the universe. And um, there's, this, there's this verse in the Gita that came to mind when you said that, which is, uh, Lord Krishna said, when Dharma is in decay and a Dharma flourishes, meaning a Dharma, meaning like anti-Dharma flourishes, I take birth age after age. To yeah. basically to restore dharma. So it almost seems like not only individuals, but the whole society and the whole of humanity can be out of tune with dharma. There's some higher purpose that we collectively, as well as individually, could be living, and we've kind of lost our way with that. And so then there needs to be some kind of restoration of our alignment with that higher purpose. Would you care to comment on that? 
I really like that verse in the Gita. You know, many traditions have similar, in a sense, prophecies like that. You know, mm-hmm. when, when things get really bad, I'll show up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, yeah. the, the avatar. Here I come to save the day. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so I think, um, and I think that's been true. You know, when we look at history, there's these you know, um, awakened um, beings that have come on the scene and shined a light of, hey, you know, th- this is this is what we are. This is this is how we can live in, in harmony with this cosmic order, with, with dharma, this way of righteousness, however you want to call it. This is how we can express our highest nature and not our lowest nature. And so we've seen that, you know, in history. We can see those shining ones. But I think we have the blessing of living in a time when it's not about a, a single avatar showing up, mm. but that in the book I, I call it the avatar influence, which is that you know many people are awakening today, and that's what is needed. You know, we now have the dissemination of enlightenment teachings all over the planet in a way that's never happened before. So there's a opportunity for this global awakening and for that which brings us back to dharma coming from people everywhere that's really what we need and i i think it's fabulous to live in such a time yeah you probably know that quote by Thich Nhat Hanh where he says uh, the the next buddha may be the sangha yes you know the collection of people so it's not it's it's kind of a a many-to-many dynamic rather than a one-to-many kind of thing. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and I even quoted him in, in my book on that section where he said, you know, what what we need today, I think he said, you know, what we have is um, homo sapien and what we need is homo conscious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nice. Incidentally, I want to mention for those watching live that if you want to submit a question during this interview, go to the upcoming interviews page on batgap.com and there's a um, there's a form at the bottom of it where you can submit a question. And I think the upcoming interviews page is under the future interviews menu. Okay, so let's get on to Artha. Let me just pose a question to you. I live in a community which is, well, I was in the TM movement for many years, and I, I, I still live in a community which is one of the main hubs of that organization, even though I'm not involved in it anymore. And, you know, I have friends who became multimillionaires, and I have friends who are basically pushing 70 and in poor health and living on Social Security and don't know how they're going to cope. And I think in large part it's been, well, different people have different aptitudes and so on, but a lot of people sort of just kept uh, putting all their hopes and dreams in spiritual enlightenment and, you know, attending courses and not really sort of taking advantage of certain educational and professional opportunities. And... Maybe they've made a lot of spiritual progress. I don't know too many who would say they're enlightened, but in a way it's kind of sad. There's, there's still a lot of poverty and all. So um, this loops us back to something we were talking about, which is whether poverty should be associated with spirituality, which we've concluded it shouldn't. Um, but let's talk about Artha, and if anything I just said triggers some thoughts that you might like to share with people, please, please speak them. Uh, yeah, thank you uh, for that particular reflection. And, and as I hear you talk about that, of course, Arta means wealth. You know, for me, it was like a breath of fresh air to discover, you know, in this ancient Vedic tradition, which my path 
is that has come from that but to see that that wealth was actually considered uh, an aim of of life but of course it's constrained by dharma and and the fourth goal moksha which we'll get to i'm sure hopefully we'll get to in we'll get this to lifetime it. right yeah, we, yeah who knows maybe in this interview we'll just yeah, ding. Exactly. <laughs> so that was really a breath of fresh air and you know for me you know my guru roy eugene davis is a direct disciple of Paramahansa Yogananda. So I learned about Yogananda from him. And then, of course, reading Yogananda's works. And Yogananda was very practical. And besides being focused on people, uh, being self and what he called self and God realized, he was also very practical about people learning to use their, he called it their wisdom guided will to live life in an abundant way to do what they had come here to do. So for me, I think it's really important that people can understand that it's not just about learning to meditate. And and I also see that this goal of Arta, this goal of wealth, gets us into grappling with the world grappling with our situation, which can help us expand our consciousness, which can help us learn about ourselves. You know, we, we bump into um, situations where we, where we learn, you know, some of those karmic imprints. One of the questions that my teacher asked early on that was a big question for me. He, he asked, what would you do if you knew that you had all of the resources available to you to do what you felt you wanted to do. And and if you knew you could not possibly fail. Hmm. Now, he wasn't saying that, you know, it wasn't one of those things like you can be anyone, you can be a rock star, you can be a movie star, you can be head of a, you know, CEO. Well, he wasn't saying that. He was just asking the question, as a way, I think, to help us, and it did me at that time, think, oh, wow, there are certain ideas that I have in my mind about who I am and what's possible for me and what's not possible for me. And it just kind of blew that open for Mm -hmm. me. So I see the goal of Arta in the same way, that it has that potential to help us uncover old ideas, old beliefs about ourselves, about life itself, that are not useful to our uh, spiritual awakening. So it can work in that way as well. It can be a transformational path. And I think it's meant to be. Yeah. Marshi Yogi also had a similar attitude as to, to Yogananda's in that he's, he used to talk about enjoying 200% of life, 100% inner spiritual and 100% outer material. And he said that not only the two, are the two not inimical to one another, but they're complementary to one another. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's why we have the four goals, you know, I mean, I, mm-hmm. I think, of course, if we just had Arta as our number one goal and we didn't have Dharma, then we would be too distracted to have a, a strong enough inner life. Well, we, we would also know. have no scruples about how we earned money. Exactly. And of course, that's a lot of what we see in our world. Yeah. You know, that, that's what's in the headlines. So I think there's an educational element to Arta as it is a, one of the Purusharthas about, you know, not only how do we cultivate 
a mind that can help us uh, do the right thing in the right way. Mm -hmm. But how do we begin to teach ethics in a way that has to do with our evolutionary potential? Yeah. That's an important point. Maybe we should try to dwell on that a little bit more before we go on to some other points. Um, the ethics thing is very important to me. I've helped to found an organization of professional spiritual teachers because there's been so much unethical behavior in the broader spiritual community and we felt that we needed to articulate a kind of a code of ethics that students and teachers could aspire to um, so that teachers, that students in particular, don't look at teachers and say, well, he's doing some screwy stuff, but he, he seems to be enlightened and I'm not, so I'll just go along with it, you know. <laughs> hey, hi, hi. <yay. laughs> <laughs> but in any case, a lot of those scenes end up crashing and burning and ending up in disillusionment and a lot of people hurt. This is a little bit tangential to our conversation, but do you have any, any thoughts on, on all of that? I think it's it's critically important, and I do think it's part of the evolution of consciousness that we've seen in our lifetime, you know, because we, we have seen a lot of that unethical behavior in yeah. spiritual, by spiritual teachers and in spiritual communities, and, you know, just like any other part of human life. It's like the very idea that in some spiritual community those things are not going to happen is a dangerous idea because you're dealing with human beings, you know, wherever you are. So I think to be raising consciousness and to be having questions about, you know, what kind of ethical um, insight, you know, do we bring into our spiritual communities and what kind of ethical commitments do we have is, is incredibly important. We've been around, if I can say that collective we, Rick, we've been around long enough to see some really positive transformation in that way. You know, yeah. like you say, in, at one point in time, you know, those things weren't really talked about. It was like, okay, well, um, that's the guru, and if that's how the guru is behaving, then, you know, it must be something I don't get. And we've seen a lot of destruction come out of that. And then also a lack of faith in the whole spiritual process itself, which has not been helpful. But today, you know, there have been a lot of communities and a lot of groups, perhaps like, like the one that you're a part of, that is just helping to raise consciousness to make it a safer place for people to be practicing and exploring. It's part of the zeitgeist, you know, with the Me Too movement and the expose of what's been going on in the Catholic Church and all. People are fed up with that kind of stuff being associated with spirituality and they just they either either they don't want anything to do with spirituality or they want spirituality to become what it ought to be and you know what the highest examples of it were yeah, yeah. exactly and I, you know from my perspective you, you part of that is an educational process to know that you're always going to be dealing with human beings mm -hmm. and so people need to be awake you know going when whenever context they're they're in and not um, you know check their their intellect and their own ethics at the door. Yeah, and let's jump to the Yoga Sutras for a minute because you know the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali have the Yamas and Niyamas, which were considered by him to be essential to the spiritual path. And I'll have you tell us what those are in a second. And also other traditions, Buddhist and others, have 
codes of ethics that are considered to be essential to imbibe if you aspire to higher consciousness or higher spirituality. Yeah, and I mean, the, the, the beauty and perhaps the difficulty, I don't, I don't think it's a difficulty, but <laughs> it could be in terms of this conversation that we're having, is mm-hmm. that in Angeles Yoga Sutra, the, the higher spiritual law is given. You know, for example, in the restraints, the yamas, the first one is ahimsa, or nonviolence, or non-harming, but potentially doesn't say you shouldn't have an affair with your students, you know. Well, he doesn't get into the specifics, but yeah. he, he talks about brahmacharya there, on that point, perhaps. Yes, yeah. exactly. But it's not, it's really for, and that's why people you know, study with a teacher as far as these yamas and niyamas are concerned because then there's the commentary that says, okay, in these situations, this is how it would be applied. So when we look at at harmlessness, for example, if you start at the physical level, you know, you don't physically injure someone, you know, you don't kill, um, you don't punch out your neighbor, those kinds of things. But then it's looked at, as as you know, at the mental level, level and we're looking at our speech and our our thoughts you know that can be harmful as well so each one requires us to explore you know how it is to be applied and that's the way it should be it is the journey so there isn't a there isn't a list of specific 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 do's and this is how you right. apply it that that's your path of learning as you go well i think the whole yoga sutras was only 192 sutras or something so obviously he meant to lay out some main points and let us work out the details <laughs> yeah because i mean it's about consciousness right yeah. and so you can't have a prescription that in a sense is going to decide, you know, what's happening in a living system. You you have to al- learn how to apply these fundamental um, principles that are principles of mind and consciousness. Mm-hmm. You know how to use them, how to apply them, which is the way that that we would we would want it to be. But left open to interpretation, you know, it also leaves some gaps in there in terms of how people look at it. What is harmful? What is not harmful? That sometimes is open to interpretation. One thing I think that's interesting with all those points, the yamas and the yamas, and perhaps with many other points we could consider, is that they, there are sort of levels of subtlety at which they can be considered. Um, for instance, we've just kind of done that with, with a couple of them. Another that you talk about a lot with, re, with reference to prosperity is uh, non-stealing. What is that, Asteya or something it's called? Yes, yeah. uh-huh. Asteya, yeah. And... Um, Obviously, we know what stealing is, and you know, so we should know what non-stealing is. Well, elaborate on that, and then I'll make a point about it that might be a subtler level of it, perhaps. Go ahead. Okay. Well, it's interesting to consider that right there in the Yoga Sutra is a verse that points to wealth and the nature of it. So this one on non-stealing says that one who is established in non-stealing experiences the jewel of abundance Mm -hmm. or um, all jewels come to that yogi it's you know they're they're translated um, variously 
so when we look at the levels of it, at the physical level, of course, as you mentioned, you know, we, most of us are pretty clear about stealing, you know, not, not taking stuff that doesn't belong to us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think as with all of the yamas and niyamas, they're meant to be a journey in a sense of subtleization of a deeper and deeper understanding of what that's about. So it comes down to even like not envying um, not taking somebody else's idea and claiming it as your own. You know, there's all those little subtle uh, permutations of it. But it comes down to changing our mind, really, from lack to abundance. Because it, it has us look at, you know, if we're engaged in some kind of form of stealing, which might get us into lying or acting unethically, why it won't actually be, you know, walking away with, something from somebody's house um but you know perhaps we're lying well truthfulness is another one of the things isn't it (laughs) It, truthfulness is in there too but but perhaps we're 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 lying about our our income on our taxes or Mm. something like that because we're of the mindset that we need to do that in order to get to get right to get the money that that we need so well, how I see it is these spiritual teachings are fundamentally about teaching us how to change our mind, mm-hmm. you know, from that idea that, that we have to act unethically in order to get what we need. Mm. To me, that's the, the, the deep piece of it, because that's about being disconnected from our own uh, essence of being, uh, from the source of abundance, you know, within us, somehow thinking we have to manipulate others, manipulate, we have to lie, you have to cheat, you have to steal in order to get your needs met. I think what the, what's going on with the Yoga Sutra is look at these patterns in your own mind that you need to be cleared up if you really want to live an abundant life. It has to happen within you first, at the level of your own mind and consciousness. Yeah, I just uh, can't find it at my fingertips. I, I saw this great quote from Dostoevsky the other day about truthfulness and how, I can't find the quote right now, but how um, getting into the habit of lying kind of erodes you in a way so that you become more base in every respect. Um, you, you indulge in baser pleasures and this and that, and it's sort of a slippery slope where things just get worse and worse. And there's some cool stories in the Mahabharata and others about people who were so true to their word that if they said a thing, they just stuck to it, even their entire life. And there was a story about Yudhishthira, who, uh, one of the Pandavas, who told a white lie, and as soon as he did, his chariot wheels sunk into the mud, whereas previously they had sort of hovered above it, <laughs> if that's a true story. But the, the, that whole tradition places a great deal of emphasis on truthfulness. Yeah, and uh, the power of the word is really what Patanjali is, is pointing to with truthfulness. You know, one who's established in truthfulness, their words um, will materialize. Oh, yeah, 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 right. Yeah, and so, you know, here, again, we're talking about very subtle metaphysical law, if you if you will, that has to do with, you know, our own belief systems and how we're manifesting what we believe. And uh, it's such a powerful teaching. Yeah. And, and it's about, you know, how do we live with a higher awareness? Mm-hmm. In fact, there's a lot of stories in the Vedic literature about some sage who would say a thing 
sometimes it was a sort of a curse, and be, because he said it, it had to come true. And he, mm. he couldn't even take it back because, because he was so established. That's how the whole Srimad Bhagavatam came about. Some young sage cursed someone and said, you're going to die of a snake bite, and that was it. The guy had to die of a snake bite. <laughs> but he wanted to get enlightened before he did, so they spent the week narrating the Srimad Bhagavatam. But anyway, it's a cool, cool principle. Well, they're, they're great stories because, you know, we, we can start looking at what are we saying? Yeah. You know, how are we using our speech are we um, contributing to life? Are, are we actually cursing others, ourselves, with our speech and with our thoughts and causing life to wither around us or causing life you know, to contributing to its prospering around mm. us with our thoughts, with our, with our speech? Yeah. And there's a lot of power. There's a lot of power in our speech. Mm-hmm. And there's more power in it when we become conscious of it. Yes. There's that reminded me of that Jesus saying, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. Um, you know, they're not conscious of what they're doing. And, but if we are conscious, then it's, we're more responsible. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Like the judge would ideally get punished more than the, the, the person who doesn't know right from wrong if the judge commits the same crime. But on the point of... Um, Stealing, to take that one to a, perhaps a subtler level, there's, I think there's a verse in the Gita which says that he who appropriates the authorship of action unto himself, rather than realizing that it's the divine that's performing the action, is said to be a thief. So uh-huh. that might take it to the subtlest level. Totally. And that, and that gets, in a sense, back to uh, non-attachment mm-hmm. that, that we were one. talking about in, in the beginning, you know, which is the idea of ascribing to the small self, the ego-based self, you know, I am the doer and I am the owner of experience and I am, I am the owner of the outcomes, you know, of, the, of that experience. Um, yeah, that's a slippery slope, you know, of identifying with that ego-based self as the doer and the um, owner of experience, which, you know, just a little bit of investigation will will tell us um, in the the Gita, uh, I can't quote the verse to you now, but, you know, there is a teaching about the different factors of Mm -hmm. action, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of them, which I just call the fifth factor, is is always the mysterious (laughs) the adushta, the, the unknown hmm. element, you know, we, we have control over certain things, you know, over um, how we prepare, where we're going to do what we do, you know, we, we have this Skype call, and we, we set it up, we set up the lighting, and, you know, we do our testing, and we, and you read my book, and, you know, I, um, you know, tried to put purple on so I could <laughs> look nice and you know all of that but but we really have no control over whether the power goes out or not yeah i've had that happen (laughs) i'm sure (laughs) so uh you know it's just a a simple example of you know there's always something that is out of our control and so to imagine you know that somehow we control all outcomes is just kind of um ridiculous uh, to begin with yeah and that gets us into an interesting area which um, I don't know. I bet you in your tradition you have a phrase for it. Mar- Marishi used to call it supportive nature, but what he meant by that was 
you know that that saying like you got up on the wrong side of the bed or something like nothing goes right for you. you you hit the red lights you don't find the parking place and you know you um, all kinds of you're just kind of born under a bad sign that was a song <laughs> um, <laughs> whereas others you know seem things seem to go quite smoothly it's like unseen forces as it were are helping to orchestrate their life and and things just are conducive to their success uh, so that's kind of a in, whole interesting mechanics of that we could get into I think yeah, uh, in my tradition, you know, we talk about that as as divine grace. You know, mm -hmm. there there are the the forces of nature which we can learn about. You know, we we study the gunas and the different qualities in nature and how to learn how to cooperate with nature. But beyond that, um, is this uh, kripa we call, call it grace. Mm -hmm. You know, this element of divine grace that that you also can open yourself to you know you know in the tradition traditional way you know we don't we don't create grace we don't cause it but we can certainly there seems to be some some way that we can open ourselves to it that there's some there's connection in my tradition i i have heard the teaching that there's a connection between self-effort and grace although self-effort doesn't cause grace. So it's sort of a mysterious uh, connection. And, you know, I, I've seen that in my life, and I think it's just a matter of becoming receptive to that. Yeah. Maybe more harmonized inside of ourself or something. There's that saying, God helps those who, who help themselves. <laughs> and some gurus say, take one step toward me, and I'll take a thousand steps toward you, you know, things like that. So we have to make the initial effort, perhaps. But... Just to get explicit, I, I know people who say that they have subtle perception and that they actually, actually can see sort of guiding what, what spirit guides or whatever they are kind of hovering around and orchestrating and attending to people, uh, even in ordinary circumstances. So if that's true, then you know there is this subtler realm in which reside subtler beings who uh, are kind of involved in human affairs. And there's that... Vedic saying, sattva me vajayate, truth alone or purity alone is victorious. So the assumption here is that if you, have, if you amass more of that, then you will attract the support of the subtler impulses of intelligence that uh, operate in nature, and it will make your life more successful, more smooth. Yeah, and you know, and Patanjali talks about, um, you know, one of the ways to raise consciousness to help clear the mind is to um, contemplate the consciousness of awakened beings. Mm. Sort of like tuning in to a higher consciousness, higher vibration, if you will. Mm. And, you know, for me, you know, my ordinary experience of that is if I allow myself to get too wrapped up at the, um, with the thinking mind mm -hmm. um, in its swirling nature, versus when I can cultivate a, a clearer mind, a quieter, more open heart, then there seems to be that resonance and that connection that's really not about outer circumstances. But, it, you know, life itself seems more supportive, but I, I suspect it's because I'm in a more receptive place. Yeah. Yeah, receptive is a good word there because I think... Sometimes 
opportunities are subtle and it takes receptivity and a kind of subtle discrimination or discernment to pick up on the the correct course of action to take you know we're not necessarily it's not necessarily announced with a bullhorn you know we just have to sort of have a feeling of which way to go an intuitive feeling and and then that kind of works out yeah yeah I wrote a poem about my experience of kind of shifting from that just running around in the mind versus being open to grace. Do you and have that at your fingertips would, to read, or would it be hard to take you a while to find? I think I can find it. Let me look. Yeah, it's called Fire in My Heart. Mm-hmm. Some days I sit near your fire, feeding it the kindling of desire. Live in the way, the Buddha said, and the light will grow in you. Live in the way, the Buddha said, and the light will grow in you. Sorrow and joy come in, sit down together as friends. Everything that is needed appears. Other days I forget about the light, set out alone in the dark, ambitious prodigal with damp wood determined to start my own fire. When the invitation to the heavenly feast arrives from the universe, I politely decline. I have prepared a feast for you. Will you come? No, I'm too busy with matters of life and death. I insist on my own way, saying no to love until no becomes sand in my mouth. Why all this suffering, I ask? Come, sit by the fire. Forget about life and death, being and doing, coming and going. Soon the sitar will begin. Its notes will make you weep. For everything lost and gained, for the extravagant mercy of the one. Great. That's nice. Is that from your book, The Moon Reminded Me? Yeah, that's from The Moon Reminded Me. Nice. Thank you. (laughs) I'll list the link to that on on your page on that. Thank you. A question came in. Might as well ask it. It's a little bit out of context with what we're talking about, but this this would be a good point to ask it. So I think you know this fellow, or he knows you, because he said, thank you for your Sunday talks at the center. The energy you exude is unfailingly cheerful and tranquil. And this is Mark Peters from Santa Clara, California. He said, Yogananda speaks of many visions and mystical encounters in his autobiography. Has this type of extraordinary experience played a role in your own unfoldment? If so, would you be willing to share an anecdote or two? Well, yes and no. <laughs> so, so yes, um, there have been um, experiences that I've had along the way and just experiences in meditation, breakthroughs in meditation, which allowed me to experience a shift in consciousness um, which allowed me from time to time to have experiences of inner phenomena that I'd read about, you know, inner light, inner sound. 
potentially talks about those experiences as potentially faith building. You know, mm-hmm. if you have some experience when you're meditating, it can help you think, okay, you know, this is something that the sages wrote mm-hmm. about. Wow, I'm, I'm having that experience. So that's a yes in terms of phenomenon. And my no is that my teacher always said, whatever you experience, forget about it. <laughs> Just continue to go beyond that. Don't, don't get stuck in, in phenomena or feel that you know, you're enlightened because you saw a light in your meditations. So the yes is having those ecstatic experiences can be faith building. But my no is from the tradition that I come from, there's a keep on keeping on was the teaching of Lahiri Mahashaya. Don't, don't, don't get stuck at any of those places of, of phenomena. So there's those experiences in meditation. And then for me, there's the sort of eyes wide open experiences in the world of seeing the, the nature of reality in expression so for me, those experiences are the most meaningful, whether it's some apprehension of this divine grace, divine order, the nature of the mind, to where I feel my heart, I would describe it as my heart opening. And it's an awesome experience of the beauty of life, the the tenderness of it, the vulnerability of it, the deep shining core of it. That's why I write poetry, because I cannot put it into words. So I don't know if that answered the question, and I am really grateful that you're listening and that you sent your question, and I hope that was helpful. It was helpful to me. I thought it was a good good answer. (laughs) People have probably heard this before, that flashy experiences, while they may be interesting and nice, are not it, ultimately, and and that what we're really aspiring to is kind of a 24-7 state of realization, which is not at all flashy. It's just extremely natural. But it it bears reminding sometimes, and sometimes when people have do do have some kind of flashy experience, they they jump to conclusions in terms of how enlightened they are or whatever. It can be a bit of a pitfall. Yeah, and that's why, you know, it's been a blessing that my, my teacher has continually reminded us that, you know, those those experiences do not mean that, you know, we, we've experienced the ultimate and we should just keep going. And, and I do want to say that, you know, as inspiring as the life of Paramahansa Yogananda is, and of course he's inspired people all over the world, it is possible then, of course, to compare ourselves and our meditations you know, to his meditation mm-hmm. um, and how he describes his meditation. And that's not so helpful, I don't think. I think it's useful to know that meditation, even as he taught it, is not about having ecstatic experiences. It's about waking up. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think it bears repeating that it's not a good habit to compare oneself to others in terms of what we think we're experiencing and versus what we think they're experiencing. Yeah. It's just and confusing. People are so different, aren't they? And yeah. I always say, you know, that it, it usually turns out that 
you're married to or your best friend is somebody who has very different experiences than you, you know, and so you think, geez, you know, that's not happening to me, you know, how come? And uh, I've seen that so often with couples or, you know, people who are close or either they're, are they're inclined, you know, maybe one is a, is a bhakti, you know, they're, they're off to kirtan and the other's a jnana yogi and it just, you know, like, read a book. (laughs) Really, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, you just said it. I was just going to say, people are wired differently, and they have different aptitudes, different inclinations, different nervous systems, and um, so it's it's only going to create confusion if you compare yourself with them. E- even if somebody's having all kinds of extraordinary experiences, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're more enlightened or something, and it's absurd to even ponder whether they are. I mean, it doesn't really help, I think. Yeah. Although I'm, I've been guilty of it myself, you know, you get kind of impressed when you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and then it's really problematic if we impress ourselves, our own self. <laughs> yeah, that's even worse. I always say I, I prefer to err on the on the side of considering myself less evolved than I may actually be. All right. So so far we've discussed in terms of the four. What do you call those four things again? Purushartas. Yeah, Purusharthas. Okay, so we've discussed Dharma and Artha, and we'll probably come back to Artha a bit more. But the next one is Kama, which means pleasure, I guess. And probably when most people hear Kama, they think of the Kama Sutras. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, absolutely. But probably there's more to it than that, right? Yeah. Although, you know, sexuality is certainly part of pleasure. We mm-hmm. hope it is. And, and again, like wealth, for people who come onto the path of yoga, philosophy and practice as a meditative path of self-realization, God-realization, this idea that wealth and pleasure are somehow included as uh, life aims, there's a breath. Usually when I introduce the Purushartas and I get to wealth and then pleasure, you know, people would just there's nervous laughter that breaks out in the room, you know, like here we are in a meditation center and now we're going to talk about money and sex and, and, <laughs> and how they are actually part of holistically living a spiritually conscious life. And so, you know, it makes sense really when we think about it, like if you were a person who is a, an excellent meditator and you're quote unquote spiritually awake and you're miserable, um, and, and you don't enjoy life, then what's the point? To me, it, it's sort of obvious that enjoyment of life is is critical to even following a path. Yeah, and like the other things we talked about, there are different flavors and levels of enjoyment. I mean, you can experience a lot of bliss, both in meditation and perpetually as a result of meditation. That's a form of pleasure. There's a friend of mine who wrote a book called Happy for No Reason. It's not, not like you're indulging in anything external that's causing this, this happiness. It just is there in your heart, in your experience, um, as a kind of a baseline. Well, and as a life goal, you know, it's it's tremendously instructive because in order to actually enjoy life, we have to study the nature of our own mind and learn about the nature of happiness and the nature of the soul. And 
as you were pointing out, you know, this beautiful book title, by the way, being happy for no reason, that, you know, we have that capacity and ultimately yoga points us in that direction to learn how to distinguish between um, happiness that we experience from a pleasure that we experience from the senses mm-hmm. at one level of a pleasure, pleasure that we experience from meeting a goal. For example, in life, we feel happy when we accomplish something happiness that we experience when we serve, when we do something to care for others, and the happiness that we experience that's inherent to our being, that is the bliss of of the soul. So learning about those distinctions and where they lead are actually essential to us um, really enjoying life. Because we we know, and um, I mean, that was part of my pre- getting onto the path, the journey of just being disappointed. You know, I was just like disappointed. Wait a minute. You know, I, I have this, I, I got that, I did this, I achieved that, but there's something missing. And, you know, I didn't really know at the time, you know, what was missing was myself, mm. you know, and of course myself wasn't missing. The self is never missing, but my ability to connect to myself was not there and I didn't know who I was. And so I was you know, seeking that enjoyment of life completely externally. So as a life goal, it is really essential to learn about where we find happiness and where we ultimately find bliss and how, I mean, it changes everything. Yeah. Would you say, I've heard it said, that anything that we, there's that great Upanishad, you can probably quote it, you know, that it's not for the sake of the, wife that the wife is dear but for the sake of the self the self is dear and then not for the sake of the friends or whatever but for the sake of the self and it, he ticks off a whole bunch of different things and it says in every case that that uh, whatever fulfillment we derive from the outer experience is actually a reflection of the inner fulfillment yeah yeah exactly and what what we love in life and even in that quote in the Upanishads wealth is included in that one right so not for the sake of the wealth that the wealth is dear but for the sake of the self Exactly. And um, it's such a beautiful quote, you know, that, that what, what we really love is that the self, we love the, the bliss of the soul, and we love the beingness, <laughs> the life. Um, when, we, when we love another, we're, we're loving that essence of being. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the truth of it. Yeah. I think a good example that might illustrate that point is we consider someone, let's say, who's very wealthy and has a very attractive spouse and a beautiful home and everything that they could want materially, and yet they have severe insomnia or they're, they're really ill or something like that, then they can't enjoy any of those things. Whereas if a person is sort of feeling wonderful inside, you know, just full of happiness and bliss intrinsically, naturally, then, you know, even living in very simple circumstances, that person tends to be happy and tends to enjoy the things that they have. Yeah, and really as a practice, it's, you know, as I was mentioning, it's, it's learning about kind of different levels, if you were, different um, levels of happiness. Mm-hmm. What, what brings us what and what's mm-hmm. temporary and what's not. Mm-hmm. And once we get that distinction, you know, we can, and this is a basic in the Vedic system, you know, this is a, like a basic step of awakening is unhooking 
um, when we begin to see through conditions as the source, right, of our happiness or our security, mm. that's a, a point at which we really enter more deeply into the path. And I, I was talking about my own journey of disappointed, <laughs> you know, what's going on here? And, you know, that, that, that's a place where a lot of people come. That's an, it's an entry. It's a trailhead, right? It's an entry onto the path where we, we feel um, we're suffering because we don't know how to find happiness. And so we we have an understanding that 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 which we gathered that's we've been able to bring to ourselves has not brought the quality of lasting happiness that we're looking for. You know, mm. it ultimately disappoints um, because it changes and it's subject to change. So that awakening um, to that doesn't mean that we don't enjoy the things in our life anymore, which I think is an important distinction. You know, it's not that we have to shun our favorite flavor of ice cream or things that we enjoy or that we have and that we appreciate. It's that we just become aware of the distinction of the quality that we're looking for of happiness that is unconditional can only be found um, within us. Yeah. So just because something is transitory doesn't mean you shouldn't enjoy it. But, you know, there have been notorious examples of people who tried to make transitory things perpetual. Uh, you know, I mean, the Romans would have orgies, and they would. Uh, well, it's kind of too graphic to describe, but they would they would do certain things so that they could continue eating you know, and stuff like that. So you know, enjoy your meal, but then that's fine. That that came and went, but uh, still, there's this baseline of fulfillment that doesn't depend on whether you get this meal or that meal or whatever. Exactly, and we we don't ascribe our well-being or our happiness or our security to those things because that's the mistake you know that keeps people just tethered to that you know looking for the next the next thing the next lover the next job mm. that's going to ultimately do it so you know it's just unhooking from that you know because the teachings tell us and most of us know in our own experience that that's just um it's a source of sorrow and suffering to make that mistake, that error. It's a fundamental error. <laughs> yeah, you know, I read those statistics in the beginning about how people are living paycheck to paycheck and they're in debt and everything else. Well, you know, at Christmas time every year, they always show on the news these mob scenes in, in malls and stores, and they talk about how much people are shopping and everything. And you see these people fighting over you know, the latest bauble. When I see that kind of thing, I think, well, you know, probably that's why a lot of them are in debt. They're just craving this stuff, which they probably don't need. And then the new, the new iPhone you got to get <laughs> and so on. And so, you know, if you're, if you're looking for all your fulfillment in, in these outer circumstances, chances are you're just, you, may, you may compromise your financial health. Yeah, it's really a good point. And there's two things I want to say about that, and hopefully I don't lose them. <laughs> you know, one is that it's compensation. We all do it in some way. You know, you're describing it in a big way, right? Compensation, mm -hmm. people trying to make up for maybe how they haven't been with somebody or, you know, show somebody that they love them by getting more and giving more gifts or whatever. So that, that points to this life aim of enjoying life, appreciating it in ways that are about the soul, you know, for the sake of the soul. And then also 
the other piece I wanted to mention when you talk about living beyond our means um, also as a way of compensation, right, for not being connected to ourself and, and doing um, what what brings us joy, what has heart and, and meaning, then we get into these behaviors that I, I would call stealing. Mm. So living beyond our means is is actually, you know, stealing, you know, from ourself. And in, in a big way, you know, in the way like in our country that we're so in debt, mm. uh, you know, we're, we're stealing from future generations and we're stealing from the environment itself, the way that we plunder the earth. So, you know, this article, ha- my mind has tremendous uh, ramifications in terms of how we live. Very good point. It, it may sound harsh, but I, I sometimes think of those who are obfuscating the whole environmental crisis and, you know, climate change and all as being guilty of intergenerational genocide because there are going to be very severe consequences to this whole thing and if we're sort of so living for the moment or for the next quarter or for you know quarter in terms of quarter of a year or for the next uh, election that we want to win that we ignore um, we we lose the big picture then we're stealing big time exactly and there is no real wealth in that because you're always chasing the next thing. So to find out about what real wealth is, um, in my mind, is critically important to awakening on our planet. Yeah. And, you know, we're also those, those short-sighted ways of being that we just described are, are also stifling possibilities. They're stifling potential solutions, which could be much more wholesome, but, you know, economic... like. And also talk about truthfulness. I mean, there was a book called Merchants of Doubt, and it talks all about how the cigarette industry um, hired all these PR firms and everything to sow doubt about whether cigarettes cause cancer. They knew that they caused cancer, but they wanted to make their money and sell their cigarettes. And some of the very same PR firms are working for the anti-climate change, you know, in interests and in the oil companies now, mm-hmm. telling lies in order to fuel greed. Yeah, and and greed is really at the at the core of it. You know, if we if we look all the way down, it's greed that's at the core. But below greed is the is the insatiable, you know, ego self, right? That's always trying to satisfy satisfy itself and its longings, but it cannot be satisfied from that level of reality. Mm-hmm. So that that is why it's. It, you know, it's critically important that people wake up. It's the most important thing that that is needed on our planet at this time because from that level, it, the problems won't be solved. Yeah. I'm glad we're coming around to this point. And um, in case, I mean, it's worth just sort of dwelling on it, on it for a moment. And that is what we're saying here is that ultimately all the world's problems are, manif- are symptomatic of undeveloped consciousness. And that if consciousness individually and collectively were sufficiently developed, most of these problems would, or if not all, would just kind of, solutions would be found. Either they would just disappear because we wouldn't be intentionally creating them, or we'd find means of ameliorating them. I believe that. And I think it it ties into the fourth goal, if I can say that. Yes, I'm thinking we should get to that. (laughs) <laughs> on a brighter as, note, <laughs> as as Moksha, you know, um, 
that that we're here to awaken, you know, the, to experience liberation of consciousness from this identification with the small self, with the ego self. We're here to, you know, find freedom from that. And um, in this lifetime, you know, so to to move out of this. Um, framework of spirituality that enlightenment is you know for some special people in another time or some future time or that that this avatar this per- person is going to come is going to save the world um so that look you know these four goals that we're talking about they're universal goals and they're for everybody and you know guess what besides dharma and arta and kama we have moksha like Mm -hmm. okay we're here to wake up and as you were just saying you know that we can see is the critical factor of you know how do we not um plunder the earth how do we stop going to war uh, over our differences, um, you know, w- we wake up, and one, we wake up to the fundamental connectedness of everyone and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that the uh, Purusharthas—that's the word, right? Purusharthas. Yes. The four, the four. Yes. Things. Yes. Are they in any way sequential, um, or did they sort of rise simultaneously, just the way the limbs of our body kind of grow simultaneously? I think that's um, it's a it's a yes and so um, yes there's in my mind there yes they're sequential and yes they're simultaneous mm-hmm. <laughs> so so I don't I don't think that um, it's useful to you know hold them like okay first we do dharma then then we do artha then we do kama then and then you know if we're lucky we have time in our life when we're retired and we start focusing on on moksha you know um and my teacher often tells the story that people would say to him well you know i figure that you know when i'm getting ready to leave this body you know, because everyone is already enlightened at the core of their being, you know, that's our our essential truth, then I'll just wake up to that on my way out. And, mm. and his response about that was always, well, that's just cutting it too close. Yeah, no better. And, and also, if you, you know, have ever been with someone making their transition, that's not the time when you, you want to, you know, try to be... <laughs> You know, accomplishing that goal. You, you want to do it before, and of course, that's what all the traditions say. So, I think there, and uh, Phil Goldberg, who, who wrote the forward to my book, he likened the Purusharta to um, the four legs of a table, mm-hmm. so that they're, they, they can bring a balanced approach to our, our everyday life and our, uh, our spiritual pursuits. But given all that, so yes, they, they are, they're intertwined, they're interdependent, and you know, we could have talked the whole show about you know, how they're intertwined and interdependent. But there also is some uh, something to be said about the sequential nature of um, how the, the Hindu tradition, the Vedic tradition, has, has looked at stages of life in terms of dharma as a as a young person when you're getting your ethical education mm-hmm. and uh, your your moral and spiritual um, values that are inculcated as a young age and then you become you know a householder in the world and you're learning about wealth and um, I always think it's interesting if we look at that sequential one that means that the 
what would be called the forest dweller stage, retirement stages when you start looking at um, pleasure, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is which is interesting to me because, you know, perhaps it's that we have a greater capacity to see the actual nature of beauty in life. I, I don't know. I haven't completely thought that one through, that, mm-hmm. but I'm thinking about it. And then moksha is, you know, moksha when you can um, focus more attention on it. So that, that is there, but it is not, they're all at once, and some of those periods of life perhaps have a greater um, orientation. Yeah, that's a good does way that of putting make sense? It. Yeah, it does. Um, you know, I was thinking, like, if we're, let's say we're doing a regular meditation practice, um, then moksha is growing. I mean, the, the, the samskaras are being worked out, and, and um, you know, consciousness is getting, the mind is becoming more clear. So we're the liberation is being cultured or it's growing it may not be complete or final but there's something in that direction and as you do that naturally you're going to be more aligned with dharma you're going to perhaps have more energy and creativity which will help with artha and you're going to sort of feel better and enjoy and your senses are going to be more clear so you're going, there's more capacity for kama and you know so they're all growing simultaneously Absolutely, that was a beautiful way to describe it. That that is how I see it. If you're if you're moving along on this spiritual path, you can't really help but sort of lift all the legs of the table up. You know, well, yeah. If you pull one leg of a table, the others are going to come along. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. And if you don't have one in there, you know, you're you're going to be off kilter. And so. Um, that that's a beautiful way, and that's that's been my experience anyway. You mm-hmm. know, of of come as I mentioned in in the beginning, I thought, well, okay, I'm gonna just meditate and sort of get out of this whole thing. But no, yoga brings you back into the world um, to live a spiritually conscious life, and you know, ha- has you engaging in life in a purposeful way and in, in an enjoyable way. And you know, ideally, that light of moksha is there you're making progress toward it but it's also a goal that i think we need to keep in front of us otherwise we we get all about accomplishing something even on the spiritual path you know we're going to accomplish something uh, spiritual right <laughs> yeah perhaps we could talk about service a little bit i don't know when i wasn't as happy a person as i am now I very much was inspired by the idea of not getting incarnated anymore, just getting out of here, you know, (laughs) have done with it. And then uh, over the years, I've felt that, well, you know, we're all instruments of the divine to one degree or another. And obviously, if God is omnipresent, if God is really the, the essence of everything, and then we are like a sense organ of that. And if we can serve, if we can be sort of an instrument of some sort of divine plan, then what's the rush? You know, I mean, I I saw this YouTube video of some old yogi and someone asked him about reincarnation. He said, I don't care. He said, whatever God wants, I'm happy to just serve. So, uh, I don't know. you have any comments on that? That's a beautiful, beautiful way to put it. Yeah, and to me, that's like, you know, serving without attachment mm. um, to results and serving, you know, for the for the joy of it. You know, Tagore's um, beautiful poem where he said, I, I, I awoke and, and discovered that, um, you know, service was joy. Mm. And um, so it, it, 
it's the opportunity that is given, you know, to, to, to love and to serve, to participate. That is, that is it, you know, um, but when we get attached to what we're doing, you know, looking for the results in it, trying to live, you know, liberate ourselves <laughs> as a, as a side benefit or, you know, whatever the idea is about it, you know, ultimately that gets in the way of the, of the joy of it. Yeah. Another thought that's been kicking around my head as I was reading your book and listening to your, your various talks is that um, I've heard from physicists that at the level of the vacuum state or the most fundamental level of creation, there's more latent energy in each cubic centimeter than there is in the entire manifest universe at an expressed level. And, you know, if, if there's a correlation between consciousness in its, in its ultimate sense and what physics understand to be the ultimate reality, then our own being, our own consciousness, ultimately is a tremendous repository of energy. And we might also throw in creativity. And so, you know, if, if we can have access to that, and if we can get the sort of the, the pipeline connected between that and, and our active life, then that obviously has tremendous relevance to affluence because it gives us the wherewithal to accomplish more. It does. And uh, I, I would say to accomplish with joy. So there's a different quality of it. And I don't mean that it's never hard or it's never difficult or it's never challenging. But my experience is when I, when I feel connected to that creative energy of the universe, if mm-hmm. you, know, you want to call it that, somehow connected into this um, stream that is um, bringing forth a divine idea, divine insights, or I feel somehow I'm, you know, connected, I'm in the right place at the right time, and can I, and mm-hmm. just in the stream of it, that, that there's a sweetness to that, there's a joy um, to that that's different than, you know, striving um, after a result, even though there's the inspiration to do something, um, to, to offer something, there's a way of being in it, which is finding some delight in the way, you know, sometimes I'll put it this way. Sometimes I feel like in my life, I'm just doing the best that I can to um, keep up with grace. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Kicking and screaming. <laughs> well, and sometimes it's like that. Yeah. Um, and um, I mean, I used to, one time I described my, um, my spiritual life uh, like a breach birth, you know, which wasn't a, really a great metaphor for me, but, you know, it was sort of like going into my life, you know, but first, and uh-huh. then, you know, like seeing, wow, you know, seeing so much in hindsight about this life force, you know, that was active and in my life and moving into experiences and, and awakening, but I was looking at it <laughs> in hindsight and, you know, sort of my life in my rear view mirror. So at some point I said, no, you know, let me just, you know, open my eyes to what is here right now and not be looking so much in hindsight and figuring it out. Let me just be awake, you know, right where it is. Yeah. That thing you said about joy kind of reminded me of a verse. I think it might be from the Brahma Sutras, but it's, it's um, contact with Brahman is infinite joy. And um, a nice metaphor for that is, like if you're 
lying in a bathtub and you're lying, you've been lying still for a while, you may not feel the wa warmth of the water, but if you start sloshing around, it, you, it starts to feel really warm. So s somehow, well, to take that verse from the Gita, um, Yoga Stakuru Karmani, established in being, perform action. When action is performed while established in being, it kind of stirs up the bliss. Yeah, it does. And, and Yogananda, I think, probably paraphrasing that verse, said, you know, this side of the transcendental field is ever new joy. This side of it, he said? This side, yeah, this, this side. This side uh -huh, you meaning, right. you know, here we are in this expressive field. Yeah. And that it, in that expressive field is ever new joy. Hmm. That's nice. You know, the expansive nature of Brahman. It's ever new. Yeah, Maharishi used to say that the purpose of creation is the expansion of happiness. And if we take the, the word lila, which means play, why do you play? Because it, it's fun. <laughs> it makes you happy. Yeah. So, yeah. So if that's true, then we're kind of fulfilling the, the very purpose of creation by living in such a way as to be more joyful. Yeah. For me, there's um, a quality of greater aliveness in that and and I, and I don't and I don't mean that um, as um, again you know and we talked about this earlier like happiness that comes from externals but just the experience of for me you know the the beauty of life the tenderness of life the love that is present brings such you know joy to my heart and my being and mm. even in the midst of sorrow it is there in the deepest sorrow when you experience someone passing from this realm you know that you love the the way the heart breaks and the tenderness and the sense of presence that is there to me it is part of the beauty and in the deep way part of the the bliss even yeah and is not symptomatic of being a, a schlep in terms of your level of consciousness. I mean, there's all sorts of beautiful stories of great saints and sages who experienced appropriate grief and so on when when someone dear to them died. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So even in the midst of sorrow, there's a, there's a quality of being that can remain. That's what I'm trying to yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't get perturbed. And... It's big enough to allow the sorrow to be. So I think it's a mistake, you know, people often make on the path that they're not supposed to feel grief, they're not supposed to feel anger, they're not supposed to feel sorrow. Well, I don't get that. You know, mm. <laughs> it seems to me you would be sort of uh, ossified, you'd be mummified. Why would we want to not have emotion? You know, I think that that what those teachings are about is that you don't want to be stuck in that potentially reactive quality of an emotion but it's not that you don't for goodness sake it's not that we don't want to feel at least that's not true for me yeah when I was about 19 or so and I had been with a girlfriend who had previously had a problem with heroin and um, we kind of broke up because I was going for meditation and wanted to go on long courses and stuff and she wasn't interested and it looked like she was going to go back to her previous lifestyle and I was kind of upset by that and I, I went to my TM teacher and I told her what was going on and she said be an ocean which is that one one phrase and mm. it helped a lot mm. 
Beautiful. Yeah, it sort of gave me chills when you said that. <laughs> There's a verse from the Isha Upanishad which has always puzzled me a bit, and you deal with it very beautifully. I've heard you talk about it in some of your interviews. The verse is, they enter into blinding darkness who worship avidya, that's ignorance, into still greater darkness, as it were, do they enter who delight in vidya. So I'd love to hear your commentary on that. The issue Upanishad, um, it really says it all. It is kind of, um, it's a surprising one. I like it for that reason, because we, you know, we're familiar with many scriptures that say, okay, you know, in the world, you're going to have trouble. You know, don't, don't put your hopes there. And you're going to have trials and tribulations and you're not going to find it there. So, you know, you know, forget about the world. So we're used to that. But here's here's one that says, okay, you're going to have trouble in the world, but in the inner life, vidya, this knowledge from within, um, if you're only focused there, you're going to have more trouble. So that's one of those things where those teachings that you say, what? <laughs> what? You know, really? I mean, I thought that I thought it was all about that. So for me, that that Upanishad points to the middle way, which is that it's neither in the world nor is it um, exclusively in the inner realm of meditation that we have to find this balance of, you know, really being awake in the world. Mm -hmm. So that's what it means to me. Yeah. And um, just another possible interpretation of it, I've, I've seen people who have focused so exclusively on the inner that they became not only dysfunctional but kind of crazy with, with reference to the outer and ha actually had to be brought down in some way or you know, given sedatives or something because there's just, they do dove in without proper integration. Yeah, that, yeah certainly the, the danger of you know, spinning out, right, in not being able to ground the spiritual experience in the world. I had a couple of friends who actually committed suicide who just kind of went off the deep end, so yeah. it's important to stay balanced. Totally. And, you know, again, it's that both, both are necessary. So, you know, that we've heard that saying, it's, you know, it's easy to be a saint on a mountaintop, right? And for me, that's about... It's possible to think that we're more enlightened than we really are um, just by isolating ourselves in our own inner world. Um, but in the world of relationship, um, you know, we get to learn about our edges. We get to learn about our um, foibles. We get, to, we get to unlock, you know, some of our samskara, some of the patterns in our mind that, you know, if we were not perturbed, um, if somebody wasn't pointing it out to us or rubbing up against us um, to ignite that fire, um, we might not know that about ourselves. Yeah, I've lived in monastic settings for years, and um, you can get very idiosyncratic. You know, you can get just very sort of hung up in your own mindset without proper checks and balances as you might have in uh, an actual relationship. And you know, it was very good for me to get married and a little hard on my wife at first because I was, I was such a nutcase. <laughs> but, um, you know, she's very practical and down to earth. 
and she was in the corresponding program for for women, but she somehow maintained greater practicality than I did. In any case, the crucible of sort of that close relationship where you just can't get away with your BS can be very evolutionary if you don't run away from it. Yeah, I have found it to be so, and I I feel very fortunate, you know, to be married to a man who's also, you know, a a yogi on the spiritual path, Mm -hmm. and we have different, we have different gurus, we're in different traditions, but Mm -hmm. the intention is still the same. And so for us, our marriage has been a gift to our awakening path. So there's a few questions that you sent me in, in as notes that I think would be just good to ask because they're really good questions, um, and I probably wouldn't have come up to them, come up with them myself. Do you feel we've sufficiently described what the awakening process is? You, you posed the question, how would you describe the awakening process to someone who isn't sure what you mean by that? Let me just add a, a little sub-note to that question. And A lot of times people refer to their awakening. I had my uh-huh. awakening. And uh-huh. I, 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 as much as I dwell on this topic, I often think, well, what do they mean by that exactly? <laughs> you know, it's like using the word liquid. I drank some liquid. That could mean any number of things. Right. So, you know, for me and, and the tradition of Kriya Yoga that I've you know, studied and practiced for many years. Awakening is um, coming to know, uh, not just know about, but know directly in your own experience. Know about and know through experience, realization, that which you are, you know, as a spiritual being, you know, being able to observe the nature of the mind, um, the nature of reality, have insight into that, but also direct experience of it. And for me, it, that's a this awakening process is something that happens over time. And, and I know that there are people who do have spontaneous experiences of waking up and they're just awake. But in my experience and that of many people I have met over time, it's a gradual process of the mental field becoming clarified and so that inner light um, of consciousness um, becomes uh, perceptible. It's no longer obscured by uh, the thinking mind, the sense mind. Mm-hmm. If you don't mind my asking, has that happened for you? Yeah. Uh, I mean, of course, over time. You know, it's sort of like a sunrise. Right. Yeah, yeah. When did so, it exactly rise? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. It, it's that... You know, what I can say is that um, over the years, it's become more clear to me. Mm-hmm. Um, my uh, reactive nature is uh, much less. <laughs> so, you know, that has, that has settled down. So I, I think it's possible for people to wake up and become self-realized, you know, to know who they are because they they know about it and they experience it directly but then you know is that full on enlightenment no i don't right. i don't see it that way i yeah. just see it is a process of awakening you know who you are and then you know there's karma to work out and there are some scars in the mental field that are yet to be cleared and so in my experience 
you know, do, do I know what I am? Yes. Do I see the nature of life and reality? Yes. Is there more? Yes. I believe there's more. <laughs> yeah. I think sunrise is a good metaphor. I just checked my weather app and, and the sunrise this morning was at 727. But I know, <laughs> I know it was light before then, but yeah. it wasn't as light as it was when the sun, I guess, first peaked over the horizon. And it wasn't, and that wasn't as light as it is now, or it's like, you know, 1.40 in the afternoon here. So it's probably a good metaphor. Many people do say, and maybe you could comment, that there is a moment which is really the, the watershed moment or the turning point between not being awake and awake, but mm-hmm. that there's still a great deal of refinement and evolution yet possible. I think yeah. Rupert Spira sent me an email recently. He said there's, there's an end to the path to God, but there's no end to the path in God. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> that's beautiful. Yeah. Oh. It makes me just kind of stop and breathe and reflect on that. I think one of the questions about liberation, about enlightenment, is you know, whether there is a steady state of that. You know, um, and certainly there are the witness of the sages say yes, you know, mm-hmm. and the and the technical nature of the Yoga Sutra and and the other scriptures say yes, you know, there there's a point at which the mental field, not only the thinking mind but the the buddhi, the the intellect becomes so purified, you know, we would say so sattvic in its nature that it is is similar to that of the, the light of the self, which then can shine through it completely. And uh, there's an awakening energetically, you know, of Kundalini, in which the person then no longer falls back into forgetfulness or falls back into delusion. Yeah, Joan Shivaputta, Shivaputta Harrigan talks about reaching the Makara point, or Makara maybe it's pronounced, at which point the energy can't go down again. And there's that verse in the Gita that you just reminded me of, the sage of steady intellect, the intellect is said to be like a candle that, that does not flicker in a windless place. Yeah. So it reaches a sort of a, a, a silence or a steadiness that's not perturbed by external circumstances. Yeah. So in, in terms of my experience on the path, that it is, again, you know, it's like a, like the sunrise, there's, there's progress towards that steadiness, mm-hmm. of, towards um, clarity. And, um, you know, I, I was having a conversation with Edwin Bryant, who has a commentary on Yoga Sutra. It's a beautiful commentary. And he was talking about how our spiritual journey is really about sattvasizing, <laughs> he made up that word, yeah. sattvasizing our life and the mental field. So becoming more and more illumined, more and more clear. So that's how you know I see the journey. Yeah, in terms of the gunas, they say Thomas is, has a hiding quality, an obscuring quality, whereas sattva is kind of, um, I guess, translucent, you would say. It, it, doesn't, yes. it doesn't obscure the self. Yes. And, and that's why the whole deal about ethical behavior and purification and yoga and so on, it's not that you couldn't possibly have a glimpse of the self or even a perpetual one with more Thomas and Rajas in the system, but it's just less likely. 
Yeah, and it, it makes sense to me. That's one of the things that I, that's one of the reasons why I fell in love with yoga, because mm-hmm. I didn't have to check my intellect at the door. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and, and these things made sense to me about the mechanics of it, you know, about how it works. And then, you know, when you start to test it out in your own experience and you find that, oh, yeah, I can see that. I can see how that works. You know, my, my mental field is becoming brighter. Mm-hmm. You know, I am able to experience the rising of a samskara, you know, and, and there's a little bit of a pause space in there now where there there wasn't before. You know, there was just, whomp, you know, the the snake bite coming out, right? Yeah. You know, and now, you know, it's, it moves a slower. So there's a, there's a choice point in there. So there, there's things that, that we can observe. But one of the things I like to say is that, uh, one of the things I found refreshing about yoga, of course, was the teaching that a spiritual practice is, you know, not about creating a spiritual condition, mm-hmm. you know, and I talk about sattvasizing, which I like that word, you know, it's about sort of making our life, more peaceful, more luminous, but we're not doing that because we want to become spiritual. We're, we're doing that because we want to be able to express more fully, you know, that which we already are. Yeah. Well, that's kind of what spiritual should mean anyway. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I think, yeah. yeah. But, but there is a lot of confusion about that, you know, and it's easy to fall into that trap that somehow I'm going to become spiritual, you know, when I when I meditate or, you know, if I, if I follow the yamas and niyamas, I'll, I'll become a spiritual person. Oh, you just become a clinging person trying to be spiritual. There's a very funny guy named J.P. Sears who has been on that gap, who has this whole spiel, the whole shtick he does about being ultra spiritual. And he's written like 12 and a half steps to becoming ultra spiritual. And he makes all these funny YouTube videos. <laughs> That's great. I'm going to have to look for that. I yeah, think uh, yeah. having a sense of humor about it is is really helpful. Yeah, you'll, you'll see him on, on that. If you look in the Bat Gap Index, you'll see, look up Sears. Remember Sears Roebuck, you'll okay. find him. What do you think about people, let's say, who were enlightened or awakened to whatever degree, to a significant degree? Um, I always avoid the, the E word, you know, because it has this sort of superlative static connotation, and I, I, I always kind of feel like... That could be further refinement, but let's just use it for the time being. And yet, then they begin to succumb in an older age to Alzheimer's, or some, as um, Robert Adams did. Do you think that they lose their inner awakening as the physical instrument deteriorates, or is it somehow awake to itself, regardless of what happens to the body at that stage? Yeah, that is what I think. The and ladder. there is a my husband's uh, guru is. Um, Haridas Baba, Babaji, they called him, founder, you know, Mount Madonna community, Mount Madonna Center. And and one time he, he had a question, you know, for Babaji about that, which was similar to, you know, why do these things happen, you know, to people who are awake and things happen to the body? And, and Babaji said, the body has its own karma. Yeah. And I thought, oh, that's just such a brilliant way to express it. So the self, you know, that that which we are, does not have karma, but the body and the mind. You know, mind, of course, is a reservoir of, of karma, but the body itself, when you think, you know, there's just cause and effect at the, at the physical level, that, of course, the body would have karma and the mind too, but that doesn't mean that the self does. Sure, but yoga aspires to 
purify the body and, and make it a, a more fit instrument for the realization of the self. So then the question is, once the self has been realized, what, and that, but then the body begins to deteriorate, or maybe you have a stroke, or your Alzheimer's, or you're impaired in some way, it sort of seems like you're reversing the process of preparation that yoga undertook. Could you therefore lose the realization? Or somehow once one has realized, one is independent of whatever happens to the body. That's what I think, that the realization does not have to be subject to the body. Okay. Now, ideally, you know, I think our, our spiritual practice does... Um, remove some of those karmic influences. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's one of the goals, right? So, I mean, that's why yogis are sort of focused on healthy body, healthy mind, so that we can be awake, we can live a long time, we can experience liberation in this lifetime. And and I have seen, you know, many very healthy yogis, you know, who have adopted the lifestyle, my, my own teacher among them, you know, who's mm -hmm. in his his late 80s, and he's very bright and healthy body, healthy mind, and ideally that's that's what we want want to see. But if there is um, karma left in the body or the mind, does that take away from the awakeness <laughs> of the self? I wouldn't think so, mm -hmm. yeah. and I don't think that it, you know that that. It's necessary to superimpose that, you know, outer on the inner experience. So it just impairs the ability to function in certain ways, but it's not necessarily going to impair the self's record. Because it does say in the Gita, for instance, the self realizes itself by itself. Yeah. Uh, it's not like we realize it as if it were a thing that a we separate from it could realize. Exactly, uh, yeah. yeah. And then if, you know, if you go down that, if you take that path of, you know, well, if somebody has this happen physically, then it takes away from their illumination. Then it also kind of tweaks the goal of, you know, somehow we're, we're looking for perfect body, perfect mind. Yeah, yeah. Me means, you know, enlightenment, but that's not the standard. Right. Yeah. And obviously there were all kinds of cases like Ramana dying of cancer and experiencing a lot of pain, but apparently, from what he said, having no no influence on his, his realization. Yeah, it's just beautiful to read his story. And, yeah. You know, like people say, I, I'm dying, you know, where would I go? That's what, I think that's what he said. <laughs> Please don't leave us, you know, where would I go? <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, there are the kinds of things that Yogananda talked about in his book of interacting with Sri Yukteswar after he had died and you know him being very much alive and just sort of in a, in a different or in a, in a subtler body so there's that whole consideration yeah yeah which is an interesting one in itself because you know some people feel like well there is ultimately no personal self therefore when when the body dies there isn't going to be anything left, and, and reincarnation is nonsense because that would imply that there's something or someone to reincarnate. But um, I, don't, I, I could explain that away, but would you like to give it a crack? <laughs> well, I don't have a memory. I don't have a memory of another lifetime. Mm -hmm. So I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I will say that it makes sense to me that that the mind, you know, carries the blueprint. 
and I think it was the Dalai Lama who, who said that, you know, just because the body dies, we don't have evidence that the mind does as well. You know, been people confuse the mind with the brain. You know, the brain dies with the body. It's a physical organ, but there's no evidence at this point that the mind dies. And along with the mind is where the, the karmic storehouse is, um, which, you know, according to the theories of reincarnation, mm -hmm. would give rise to another birth. You know, to, body, yeah. Yeah, to work out those um, impressions, um, those karmic impressions. Um, yeah, I, it's to me it makes sense, you know, just just observing nature, the mm -hmm. cyclic nature of things. You know, why would we be any different? Why would we be separate and apart from nature that is birth and death and birth and death? Plus, there's tons of evidence in terms of little kids having detailed recollections of past lives, and you know, you, they look up all the evidence, and this kid's talking about what kind of plane he flew in World War II, and who his buddies were, and what his name was, and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. 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 And well, I, you know, I've had, you know, some experiences that, you know, you don't know whether you, at least I don't know, you know, whether I manufactured that in my mind or whether it was really a spiritual insight. You know, I had my, saw my father, you know, after he left his body, and. That's a common experience for people, by the oh, way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. People don't talk about it because it sounds, you know, too kind of crazy. But, um, but it's an interesting phenomenon. And you know, I wasn't looking for him. I wasn't trying to have a séance or anything like that. But you know, it just showed up, and I could, I could see. It wasn't like a physical appearance, but it was a subtle realization that that that's that's who it was mm -hmm. and um, it was a really beautiful experience for me actually because my father was um, agnostic and I was always a you know I I don't know about reincarnation but I came in with spiritual yearnings and so I was in a family without religious uh, inclination or spiritual inclination and so I often think well on purely on the psychological level I was there to balance out the family yeah, yeah. and but he didn't really oppose my journey, but he, he didn't really seem to have that for himself. And so when I saw him, you know, after he had left his body, that insight that came, the communication that came was him just showing up and saying, well, it's true. And it was like a, it was like a blessing. So, you know, whether that just came from, you know, some, pattern in my mind you know I don't I don't really know except that I know how the experience felt for me it was very faith building for me to have that experience yeah I'm inclined to believe it and it's just like one of those things that I think are getting more and more into the popular culture these days people are just there's so many TV shows about this kind of stuff and I think people are just beginning to get it under their belts you know that this is the way the universe works whereas Quite some time ago, one might have been burned at the stake for <laughs> believing such things or whatever. You know, it's just like the whole society is evolving to more profound understandings of things. Yeah. Well, is there anything that you think you might have wanted to say that we didn't get to? Well, probably, <laughs> probably that that will that will be there. Yeah, I, you know, poems are always a great way for me to. 
to just say what I what I can't say. So maybe sure. I'll. And while I'll you're looking for the poem, let me just sort of make some closing remarks so that I don't have to make mundane remarks after you read your beautiful poem. So everyone listening has been or watching has been listening to an interview with Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien. She'll have a page on batgap.com uh, on which I'll link to her books and her websites. Uh, one of her websites I'm showing on the screen right now. Uh, that's one of them I'll be linking to. And then another is, what, it's ellengraceobrien.com. Yes. Mm -hmm. And you have another one for the csecenter.org, which is the center that you run in San Jose. Good. And uh, obviously people can get in touch with you through those and you travel around and you give courses and you, you have regular weekly meetings there in San Jose for those who live in the area so people can get in touch with you. Great. And things happening online. So all that is on the... They have webinars and stuff like that. Yeah, at the ellengraceobrien.com. So great. That's great. So this is a little poem about the awakening journey mm -hmm. and it's also from the moon reminded me in the heart is a well in the heart is a well filled with the sound of silence drink from it one taste changes everything how do i know the day I stopped sitting on the edge and fell in told me this. The day I stopped sitting on the edge and fell in told me this. Nice one. <laughs> thanks. Okay, well, thanks so much, Ellen. I've really enjoyed both preparing for this interview all week and then spending this time with you. Thank you so much, Rick. It was really a pleasure for me and uh, an honor to be on your program. And, and I really want to thank you for all that you put into this website. It's really an inspiration. And the work that you do, I mean, preparing, it's not just the conversation that's heart to heart, soul to soul, but also that you, you know, spent the time that you did learning about you know, my work and the work of others that you bring onto the program. Deep bows, and thank you for that. I kind of multitask. So, like this afternoon, I'll be out cross country skiing in the woods listening to something or other. <laughs> I kind of do that, cutting the grass and whatever else. It's a nice way to keep your attention on this stuff and prepare for these interviews. Well, it's wonderful, wonderful work, and, and I'm glad it's, it's prospering, and I uh, just encourage people to keep on supporting it. Oh, thank you very much. Okay, thank you to those who've been listening or watching, and we will see you next week.